This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Science discovers wonders in the universe, but sometimes horrors here on Earth. About 251 million years ago, up to 90% of living things in the ocean died off. We call it the great dying, and global warming did it. On our current course of business as usual, new science shows mass die-off in the seas could happen again. The new paper published April 28th is titled, Avoiding Ocean Mass Extinction from Climate Warming. The young lead author is Justin L. Penn. He began his research as part of a team at the University of Washington with co-author Curtis Deutsch. Justin is now an associate research scholar at Princeton. From Los Angeles at the moment, Justin Penn, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Now look, in 2021, humans set another record high for greenhouse gas emissions, and some economies are sizzling. Scientists on this program project that business-as-usual fossil fuel burning could make the planet five degrees or more hotter, and that's in centigrade, by the year 2100. According to your research, would that be enough to trigger a mass die-off of life in the world's oceans? So our work has found that by 2100, in the scenario of five degrees of global climate change, that itself is not enough to cause a mass extinction, but it would place the oceans on a path that would, if warming continued, eventually lead to extinction. So we, we found that by the year 2300, if greenhouse gas emissions continue on their current uh, accelerating trajectory, that would be enough. But it would take warming of something like 10 degrees, so warming that uh, extends beyond the end of the century. Well, let's get back to that so-called great dying. Could you take some time to tell us what happened then, please, Justin? Yeah, for sure. So there have been five mass extinctions in Earth's history, and the one with the largest magnitude was during the end Permian, like you said, roughly 250 million years ago. We've known for a long time that this extinction occurred alongside global climate change, such as climate warming, and the loss of oxygen from the ocean, among other environmental stressors like ocean acidification and changes in the primary productivity of the ocean. But until recently, we hadn't known the connections between the environmental changes and the collapse of the marine ecosystem that we can see in the record of fossil organisms from that time. So that's where our past study in 2018 came in. We combined climate model simulations of the past Earth during the Permian era, along with laboratory data on species physiological sensitivities to environmental changes like ocean temperature change and and ocean oxygen loss. And then we combined that with this mathematical model that allows us to predict how much oxygen organisms need relative to how much is in the environment. And when we combined all these pieces together, we could predict the patterns of extinction during this past ocean warming event. So why that is interesting is because the model actually predicted a specific geography of extinction. That is, species living closer to the poles were at higher risk of extinction compared to those living at the tropics. The next thing we did was we looked at the fossil record itself, which records how many species went extinct at different locations on the planet during the Permian. And what we found was that 
the fossil record actually confirms the model prediction that things living at the poles would have gone extinct at higher rates than those living at the tropics. And so that confirms to us that the end Permian itself was caused by global warming and oxygen loss. Two changes which are similar to environmental changes occurring today because of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. We think the increase in greenhouse gases uh, almost a quarter of a billion years ago was caused by Siberian volcanoes, and they erupted for about two million years, it looks like, and it took a long time for that warming and dying. Does that compare with the rapid production of greenhouse gases by this civilization? Right, that's a great question. So yeah, we think that the best dating on the on the time scale of the Permian extinction says it happened somewhere between 10,000 to 100,000 years. The warming that's occurring today is happening at a much more rapid time scale. The magnitude, the eventual magnitude of future warming is still unclear. But in the high emission scenario that we analyzed in our new study, the warming could eventually get to something like 10 degrees if greenhouse gas emissions continue to accelerate over this century. Your paper notes that some things like marine heat waves are not included, but that is exactly what is killing off coral reefs needed for so many marine species. Isn't it likely that the speed of carbon buildup that we've just been talking about in the atmosphere this time could create disruptions that have never been seen before in the fossil record? Yeah, and that's something that we haven't uh, been able to take into account in our work, but is a useful next step to include the timescales of of warming uh, as a factor in uh, extinction risk. Most extinctions in our times have been on land, not in the sea. Why do you think extinction will move to the sea creatures? Well, unlike on land, the direct human impact from the sea has sort of lagged behind, um, mostly because the ocean is quite remote and it's hard to get to, unlike places on land where humans live. That being said, as uh, greenhouse gases accumulate in the atmosphere and the oceans warm, eventually the deeper parts of the ocean will absorb some of that temperature change and will lose oxygen as a result. And that will lead to changes in remote parts of the ocean that are difficult to get to or have been historically. Why does a warming ocean lose oxygen, and does the atmosphere gain that gas? So most of the oxygen on planet Earth is in the atmosphere, and just a small uh, fraction is in the ocean. As the oceans warm, it loses oxygen for two reasons. One is there's just less gas soluble in water at higher temperatures. So if you move from the poles to the tropics, you'll find less oxygen just in the baseline climate state at the surface of the ocean. And then as you warm up the ocean everywhere, you start to lose some of that oxygen from the ocean to the atmosphere, like you said. And then the second reason that the ocean loses oxygen has to do with the ocean's circulation. So if all the oxygen comes from the surface of the ocean, it has to be transported into the interior through ocean circulation. But as you warm the ocean, you start to slow down that uh, overturning circulation that moves water from the surface into the deeper regions, and that slows the supply of oxygen into the deep. Your work examines two major drivers of marine extinction, as we've been talking about, ocean temperatures and the amount of oxygen available for life. Other scientists point to ocean acidification as a major driver of marine extinction, including in the Permian-Triassic die-off. Why doesn't your study of climate impacts include acidification? 
That's another great question, and, and acidification is, a, is another environmental factor that, when included in, in models of extinction, would only amplify the extinction risk that we've found in our paper. We focused on the two environmental drivers, warming and oxygen loss, in this current study because in the Permian, we found that these two environmental factors were the ones that can actually explain the pattern of extinction in the fossil record, whereas ocean acidification would lead to a pattern of extinction geographically that is in opposition to what we're finding in the fossil record. So it seems like it likely was not the leading cause of extinctions during that event. We know overfishing is decimating some species like the North Atlantic cod and others in Asia. Land-based pollution is also creating big dead zones in the sea. How do these other human drivers compare to global warming when it comes to the potential to kill off sea life? something we tried to uh, look at in our study. It's definitely a difficult one to answer, and it's, and it's uh, because of its complicated a slew of interactions between all these factors. But one way we tried to look at this was to use the IUCN red list of endangered species. So that list compiles all the different threats for different species that have been assessed by the IUCN and tries to figure out what fraction of species are currently endangered with extinction from human influence, including the factors you've named, like pollution and overfishing. And we found something that, based on the red list, something like 10 to 15% of species are currently at risk of extinction. Now, in our study, we could then project the fraction of species that are at risk of extinction through climate warming and ocean oxygen loss alone. And we found that under a business or under a high emission scenario where greenhouse gases accelerate over the century, that climate change will become comparable to all current human stressors by something like the end of the century. Does your study include extinction of plants and other ocean life like phytoplankton and bacteria? So our study is limited to water-breathing marine animal species because the mechanism of extinction in the study is the loss of aerobic habitat. So the loss of, of habitat regions where, where species can uh, breathe oxygen. So things like plants, which produce their own oxygen at the surface ocean, would not be affected by this mechanism. Although they could lose habitat just through the reduction of the ocean's overturning circulation, which supplies nutrients to the surface ocean that's critical for plant life. Okay, so it's critical to realize, though, we are really talking about animals in this particular study. Yes, exactly. And water-breathing animals. So things like mammals, like whales and dolphins, would, which breathe oxygen from the atmosphere, would not be impacted by this specific mechanism, although the potential for a shockwave through the food web that's caused by the collapse of species through this mechanism could propagate up to other organisms not directly affected. Well, speaking of food, on this program, we tend to track threats to the world food supply, things like crop failures caused by heat or drought. Looking at figure two in your new paper, the most productive food fisheries of the world are also threatened by extreme global warming. Talk to us about that, Justin Penn. Yeah, we mapped out the regions of local species extinction caused by warming and oxygen loss, and we found that those regions are tend to be centered towards the lower latitudes. And that arises because at lower latitudes, uh, temperature is already high and oxygen is already low. So species are 
closer to their eco-physiological limit for aerobic habitat. So any small change in warming could have a big effect in these regions. And those regions happen to be where the extraction of food from the ocean tends to be highest. There's been a big movement to establish protected marine parks uh, by many countries. Large areas have been set aside. But if species have to move to survive because of these changing conditions under warming, as you describe, maybe those marine parks become less uh, workable. Indeed. And actually, I was speaking with a reporter last week who coined the term marine protected anoxic zones, which basically means that you can establish these regions where you can't fish, but if those waters lose their capacity to supply oxygen to marine organisms, then uh, you could lose biodiversity in those regions just through climate change alone. Well, we have the same thing on land when we're we're trying to protect certain forests, but then the forests convert into grasslands or, or burn down. As we said, there's no good example in this planet's history of one species creating extreme climate change within a couple of centuries. But can you give us some clues of the signs to watch for, how this marine dying might unfold if we can't stop our pollution? Yeah, uh, that's another great question. So uh, similar to the, the Permian extinction, we found that the regions of highest global extinction risk are those at higher latitudes. So we'd expect to find things going extinct globally first at higher latitudes. That being said, local biodiversity is expected to be lost first at the lower latitudes as things try to move away from the tropics and up towards the poles. That is for species that are able to uh, disperse and colonize new, new regions. Already we're seeing the migrations of species in the ocean that have that have been linked to climate warming itself historically over the past half century. And recently, we've been seeing uh, local die-offs caused by fluctuations in, in ocean temperature and oxygen in small uh, local regions. So as these stressors amplify and unfold, we, we expect those uh, observations to play out. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Justin Penn from Princeton. We're discussing his new paper, Avoiding Ocean Mass Extinction from Climate Warming. These are all fantastic-sounding predictions we're talking about. It sounds like science fiction doom in a way. Justin, how confident are you that another great dying in the seas is possible, or, or is it even likely, if we don't change course with greenhouse gas emissions? So the mechanism that we are that would cause extinctions moving forward from climate warming, we found is able to explain the extinctions that have that can be observed in the fossil record 250 million years ago. And so that gives us strong confidence in, in our ability to project extinctions moving forward. That is, because we can explain extinctions in the fossil record using this mechanism in the past, we expect that a similar mechanism will drive extinctions in the future. That being said, we found in the study, one of the main things that we found was that the magnitude of the future extinction depends strongly on how much greenhouse gases we emit moving forward. So the future, we found, is not written in stone. It depends strongly on human behavior and how much CO2 we emit over the next century. 
Yes, you and your co-author and, and mentor, I might say, Curtis Deutsch, say it's still not too late to avoid mass extinction from climate change. But I got to say here on Radio EcoShock, uh, back in 2010 and earlier, scientists said we had another 10 years to avoid the worst, and now those 10 years are gone. When is it too late? Do we know that? That is a great uh, question for a follow-up study. So in, the, in our study, we looked at two idealized greenhouse gas emissions trajectories, one where emissions continue to accelerate this century, and another where emissions trends are reversed starting now and then continue to decline over the next century. And in that case, extinctions are kept low and well below uh, mass extinction levels seen in the fossil record. One interesting thing is we, in our study, we plotted extinction risk as a function of global temperature change. And what we found was that regardless of the emission scenario, so in the high emission scenario or in the low emission scenario, the amount of extinction you get per degree of temperature change is pretty similar. So what that means is that allows us to sort of think about for any amount of temperature change that we might expect, how much extinction can we expect? So even if if reality falls between the two emission scenarios, we can sort of look up how much extinction we'd expect for how much warming might occur. But if humans miraculously wake up and slash emissions and manage to squeak under 2 degrees C of warming by 2100, that's just less than 80 years, what does life in the ocean look like in that case? What, what can we hope for? So what we also did is we took extinction risk projections for the future, and then we applied them to the fossil record of marine biodiversity over the last half billion years. And what we found was in the, in the, in the high emission scenario, the number of animal species in the ocean would drop to something like we haven't seen in the past uh, roughly 50 million years. However, if humanity does get greenhouse gas emissions under control, this would preserve the marine biological richness that we've seen accumulated over the last half billion years and preserve it going forward. That being said, solving the climate problem does not lead to reduction in the overfishing of the ocean and other direct threats like marine pollution. So those extinction risks from those threats would still have to be dealt with. While you were at the University of Washington, did you by any chance cross paths with Dr. Peter Ward and his theory of how hotter oceans produced toxic gases that killed off many land species? I never directly met Dr. Ward, but I have uh, read his work. Are you, and so are you thinking of uh, something like hydrogen sulfide? Yes, Under a Green Sky was the book that proposed that theory. Yeah, so I have, I have read that. And interestingly, we, we found for the Permian where hydrogen sulfide has been proposed as a mechanism of extinction, we found that to explain the fossil record, you actually don't need to invoke hydrogen sulfide as a kill mechanism, although it could have contributed. Okay. And you're a young scientist taking on one of the biggest questions there are, will life as we know it survive the human experiment? And you might live long enough to know whether we are committed to another great dying. How do you cope with this heavy stuff on a personal level, Justin? I am a optimist, I think, in my life in general. And so I, I'm trying to focus on the, on the fact that greenhouse gas emissions are not set in stone. And the fate of marine life has not yet been written. So now is the time to start changing 
our greenhouse gas trajectory. And if, if I'm not here to get on my soapbox and say it, who will? Does it bother you? I mean, we're talking about the potential for mass extinction. We hope it doesn't happen. We do have a way out of it, it appears. But this whole story is kind of lost as a quick blip in the news cycle. It's somewhere between war and celebrity gossip, and then it's gone. But the process you're talking about, it's not gone. It's just ongoing. And and how can we overcome this need for 140 characters of Twitter when— We've got a really deep problem like this. Do you have any ideas on that? I don't have an answer, a good answer for that. I, it does give me hope that um, stories like this do seem to generate a lot of interest amongst the general public, um, even if it's short-lived. Just the response I've gotten, and Curtis, Curtis and I both have gotten over the past week to our research has been a slight silver lining. How to sustain that? Uh, interest in that momentum moving forward, that is something that uh, I don't have a good answer to. Well, part of the way you sustain that is by continuing your research. And what are you working on now, and what do you hope to work on next? We've tried to understand how climate warming and ocean oxygen loss have caused and Permian extinction, but there's four other mass extinctions and their causes, and the role of climate change in them is still remains unclear. So Moving forward, I, I hope to try and investigate the role of these changes in those other extinctions. From Princeton University, currently in California, we've been speaking with Associate Research Scholar Dr. Justin Penn. He and Curtis Deutsch just published the paper, Avoiding Ocean Mass Extinction from Climate Warming. It's in the journal Science, which is a top journal. Find links to follow up in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Justin, thank you for helping us dig into the big questions of climate change. Thanks for covering this and doing the good work. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. Do you ever feel you don't know what is going on in the world? The news spins up so fast, and things we thought so solid are broken in a day, like Roe versus Wade. Allegedly, there are more brain cells in one human than stars in the galaxy. There are almost 8 billion such minds operating on an Earth with systems so complex we can't comprehend them. No wonder. In her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, famous author Hannah Arendt said, We might not be capable of understanding, ever again, or thinking and expressing things that we are yet capable of doing. But we can see through a glass darkly. Science aids our perception and judgment of reality. But once you know this fossil civilization is a one-way ticket to oblivion, what now? As broadcast in our April 20th show, knowing what they know, more and more scientists are breaking out to rebel. Here is a clip from the April 2022 arrest of NASA climate scientist Peter Kalmus. Peter has been on our show. He chained himself to the door of the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank in downtown Los Angeles. Chase is known to be the worst bank for funding fossil fuels in the world, lending out a third of a trillion dollars for oil, gas, and coal in five years. There is no defending climate, while that torrent of money 
pushes more greenhouse gases into the sky as just a way of doing business. We've been trying to warn you guys for so many decades that we're heading towards a f***ing catastrophe. And we've been being ignored. The scientists in the world have been being ignored. And it's got to stop. We're going to lose everything. Once the scientists start taking risks like this and speaking out, I anticipate in the near future climate protests and climate actions and direct actions, the likes of which the world has never seen before. So they're literally funding the destruction of the Earth system, and that's got to stop. And I think that needs to be exposed to the public. Maybe we don't understand what climate change is. Our next guest is Dr. Blanche Verley. Her book is Learning to Live with Climate Change from Anxiety to Transformation. To help prepare us, we go to a bit from her 2019 article, In the Conversation. It is titled, The Terror of Climate Change is Transforming Young People's Identity. So here they are, what I call the six silent lies challenged by climate activism. In the conversation, Blanche writes, Humans are or can be separate from the non-human world. Individual humans have significant control over the world and their lives. If you work hard, you will have a bright future. Your elected representatives care about you. Adults generally have children's best interests at heart and will act in accordance with that. If you want to be a good person, you as an individual can simply choose to act ethically. Blanche Verley continues, Faced with these challenges, it can seem easier in the short term to turn away than try to respond, but the short term is not an option for young people. Striking students' signs proclaim, No graduation on a dead planet, and we won't die of old age, we will die from climate change. This is not hyperbole, but a genuine engagement with what climate change means for their lives as well as their deaths. They know certain possibilities have already been stolen from them by older generations. Rather than trying to hold on to dominant cultural narratives about their future, striking students are letting them go and crafting alternatives. But how can we understand climate change as a different reality? I will read The Four Principles of New Climate Understanding from the book Learning to Live with Climate Change by Blanche Verley. Common to such approaches, and thus to the book's philosophy of climate as living with, are four key interdependent notions. The first is about interconnection, entanglement, or relationality, that to exist is to be composed and continually recomposed through relationships with others, and that climate is not an object so much as a patterned set of relations. Second, these relationships are always more than human. We cannot escape our entanglement with climate and the wider ecological world. Relatedly, it is not just humans that change climate. Non-humans also participate in creating, stabilizing, and changing climate, although this does not discount the significance of the changes being wrought by some human systems in this geological moment. Third, climate is embodied, and all earthly things are viscerally enmeshed with climate. Indeed, we become with climate. Fourth, 
Climatic phenomena are inherently affective. They are energies, forces, intensities, feelings. Collectively, these principles articulate climate as a living phenomenon that emerges from the interactions and relationships between all bodies, human, non-human, and inanimate, living, dead, ancient, and yet to come. These principles come from our next guest, Dr. Blanche Verley from the University of Sydney in Australia. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Continuing climate disasters mean failure. Humans still fail to grasp the catastrophe we are making. Somewhere along the line, the adults got the story of reality wrong. We need to re-examine who we are and learn to live during this great shift in everything. And this is the perfect time to connect with Dr. Blanche Verley. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney, of course. Blanche is author of Learning to Live with Climate Change, From Anxiety to Transformation. She wrote the book after the horrendous Australian bushfires known as Black Summer. From Australia, Blanche Verley, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much for having me. Your book did not start out well for me because you challenged some of my core assumptions, and that can be uncomfortable. Do you think that is a necessary starting point? That's a really interesting observation. Thank you. I guess so. Um, maybe it's not the best way to start for readers, but I think I think we are well past uh, being able to just keep going with things that we're comfortable with. So I guess one of the things that we say as climate activists, at least in Australia, is, you know, one way or the other, change is coming. Either we change or the climate changes. And both of those are going to be uncomfortable in some ways, but I think the wins that come from taking substantial climate action, even though it requires a bit of change, will be heaps more comfortable in the long term. Yes, survival is a good idea. So in 2006, I started this radio show, and I thought it would fuel climate activism with science straight from the authors. But apparently science and scientific truth are not enough. Maybe climate is not really all about science. Your thoughts, Blanche? I certainly am not going to disparage, you know, all the fantastic work that climate scientists have done and are continuing to do. And I think sometimes we get a little bit, maybe push the idea that communicating science isn't enough. Sometimes we push that idea a bit far, I think, because we forget just how great a challenge we're up against being incredibly well-funded vested interest so it's not that communicating the science doesn't work uh, it's just that the challenges are really great and part of the problem is not just that people don't understand or don't care it's that even when the majority of people understand and do care there's still really big vested interests making it hard for us everyday people to do the right thing I guess as a social scientist, what I would add to that is, you know, you're right that understanding climate through climate science is only one way and there's lots of other ways that we can understand and engage with climate and climate change as well. 
and that they can be immensely beneficial for people both in terms of having a more holistic and meaningful relationship with climate, also learning to appreciate how climate change is a, a local and personal issue for them that affects their real world and is not just an abstract kind of set of numbers and things that's far away from them. So there's a lot of reasons why looking at climate change from, you know, different disciplines but also from different cultural knowledges has a lot of benefits. We have listeners in Australia, and I'm so glad to have them, but most of our gang are in North America or Europe. We had terrible wildfires here in the North American West. We're still having them. But I don't think they compare with that big climate event that happened in late 2019, early 2020 with the Australian fires. Tell us what happened. I don't want to be comparing, you know, one tragedy to another. I guess what I can tell you about that summer here is that we refer to it as the Black Summer, but in fact, there was a nine months worth of fires burning at emergency level. So some of those fires started in what we call winter, typically started quite in the north of the country, closer to the equator, and then as the weather got warmer, spread further down south throughout that period, uh, really escalating during the summer. And... Uh, I guess what was quite shocking about that summer was the incredible speed with which some of the fires moved, uh, a lot quicker than people had been prepared for or expecting or, or able to respond to, and the the vast amount of land that was burned throughout that really long period. And in addition to the, the land that was burnt, also the phenomenal amount of bushfire smoke that affected people. I think in the end, an estimate was that 80% of Australians were affected by the fires in one way or another. In Sydney, where I was living at the time, we had over 80 days of air uh, quality at uh, toxic or above. Um, or poor quality, I can't remember the exact description, but, you know, air that you don't want to be breathing for almost three months. So it was both the duration through which those fires extended, which meant that, you know, it was bushfires on the news for such a long time. Every time you turned the TV on or read the paper, there was a fire somewhere else. Even if you lived in the inner city like I do, lots of people that you knew had had to evacuate um, or had lost their homes, places that people had been, even as holiday makers. You know, there was a lot of people even in the cities who were attached to the places that got burned in one way or another. In addition to those human impacts, the impacts on the uh, natural environment uh, and the animals were really shocking as well. So one estimate was of three billion vertebrates being killed in the fires and the amount of land that was burned was just really incredibly extensive. I think, you know, we used sort of various European countries to compare how much land had been burned. Uh, I think at one estimate I was looking at at some point, it was, you know, the equivalent of the entirety of the United Kingdom had been burned. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it was the extent in scale and speed that made it really, uh, really terrifying for a lot of people. Well, it's going to be pretty hard to learn to live with that kind of climate change. 
Yes, yeah, it's uh, definitely a title for my book that I, you know, thought about a lot because particularly in the wake of COVID, where we, I don't know about in the in North America, but in Australia we've talked a lot about people needing to learn to live with COVID, which has kind of been code for um, actually let's pretend it's not happening and not worry about the people who will get really sick and we'll just get on with how our lives used to be under business as usual. So that phrase of learning to live with something can be, I think, really mobilised in quite problematic ways that involve actually no learning and no living and just letting people pop a lot of pain. Uh, and I guess the reason that I ended up sticking with that uh, is that I was trying to, you know, focus on the learning part but also the, the living with element of that as well. So in that idea of learning to live with something, I think there's an element that requires us to acknowledge that we're not in control of what's going on in the world. We're not in control, you know, of the world at all. That doesn't mean that there's no hope or that it's all doomed or that our efforts are futile, but our efforts at staying alive are things that we can only do in partnership and in ways that are responsive and in relationship with the wider world. We can't just come up with our ideal plans and implement them and have perfect success. And I think a lot of our kind of simplistic ideas that we're just going to fix climate change kind of use a similar philosophy to a lot of climate denial, which is that one way or another, the world won't impinge on us and we can just do what we want and have it all work out. So, look, it's a, it's a very difficult challenge and a really hard kind of, I think, ethics to occupy, but one way or another, we need to recognise that we're not in control of the world, but we do have the ability to have influence in that world and to occupy that space of, of trying to work with, you know, natural systems and with our communities and to do things collaboratively rather than a, in a kind of top-down hierarchical way. You worked with the Climate Activist Group and you have years working with university students Threatening climate news is everywhere. How are your students taking it? Yeah, look, it depends, I think, on the day uh, and also what's going on around us at the time as well. So I think part of the reason for writing the book and focusing on climate change specifically is that until 2014, I'd been teaching in universities and teaching environmentally focused classes. And, you know, there's often a lot of emotions in those classes. But when I started teaching a course that was specifically focused on climate change, it just became very emotionally intense. And students' distress about the topic became much more apparent to me. And as an environmental educator, you know, often the sort of assumption is that we're trying to get people to be concerned about the state of the environment and a lot of environmental education research has focused on people's level of concern. What I was finding with my students was, in fact, they're not only concerned, they're incredibly distressed and those sort of educational efforts that try to say, hey, don't you know how bad this is? These are all the ways in which it's really bad. We need to do something. That was really unhelpful for them 
and what they needed was to learn what we can do and how to go about doing that. So that's sort of what I've tried to focus my efforts on, I guess, after that is uh, offering people not, you know, simple solutions or promises that things are going to be okay, but a space through which we can acknowledge our feelings, all the really tricky, uncomfortable complexities of that, and also focus on how we work together, including with all of those complex emotions that, you know, different people experience differently and what we can do collaboratively to address the problems. You write about climate as entanglement. What is entanglement and how does that relate to climate change? Yeah, great question. Uh, I suppose as an academic, I spent maybe too much time reading some particular interpretations of quantum physics. Um, and I probably won't go into that, but I think the metaphor of, of entanglement that that can offer is really useful. And so part of, you know, what the quantum physics sort of stuff tells us is not only that we're all connected but that our ways of knowing something depend on the kinds of relationships that we have with what we're trying to know, if that makes sense. So how that plays out in sort of my work as a climate change educator is to acknowledge that climate change isn't something that my students are studying as though it's something far away. It's part of who they are. It's part of the world they live in. It's felt in their bodies very viscerally, whether that's as, you know, nausea before they come to class or tears running down their face while we're watching videos about, you know, climate impact somewhere. So they have a really embodied experience of climate change and that affects uh, what they can know, how they can know it and, and what they can do about climate change. So that's part of making sense of ourselves as being entangled and inseparable from climate change is to to take that really seriously and recognise that it's a condition in which our lives are unfolding these days and that has really pervasive impacts on who we understand ourselves to be, the kinds of relationships that we can have uh, and what we, you know, try to do and who we try to be in the world. Your book challenges us with different ways to view reality, and sometimes that needs better words. What is intersectional feminism, and how does that affect the climate movement? Yeah, so that it sort of relates, I guess, to what I was saying about being entangled in that who we are and how we are in the world affects what we can know. And so intersectional feminism grew out of a lot of theorizing and activism by African-American women in the States in sort of the 70s. And that was building on recognition that, you know, if you are a person of color and you're also a woman and you experience other kinds of social marginalization, your experience of the world will be very different to someone else. But that also affects the kinds of knowledges that you can have. So, for example, I'm not someone with a significant disability, so my ability to, to understand what it's like to live with a disability is really limited and someone who does live with a disability has a lot more knowledge about what that experience is like and what kinds of, for example, um, policy solutions uh, would be best to help people in those situations. 
How that relates to climate change is that everyone understands climate change differently according to who they are and the positions they have in society or around the world. So the lived experience of climate change for someone like me in a pretty well-off position in a privileged country is really different to what it's like for someone, you know, in the Pacific Islands or in Bangladesh or something like that. And so the knowledges of what kinds of, for example, actions would be best to address climate change will be different for those different people. So we know, for example, people from the Pacific Islands and a lot of developing countries really push for the notion of climate justice rather than just climate action because there's many forms of action that we can take around climate change that in fact make many people's lived situations worse. So we can try to reduce emissions by, you know, giving lots of money to big tech companies to build uh, renewables, but other options might be chipping in funding for community-owned renewables, um, and that can have, you know, a whole host of different local social and economic and political outcomes, meaning that some people can end up better off with particular policy responses than others. And so that's why understanding different people's perspectives and experiences and knowledges is really important if we want to get the whole community behind the idea of climate action rather than letting it sort of be managed by sort of technocrats. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Blanche Verley from the University of Sydney. We are talking about her book, Learning to Live with Climate Change from Anxiety to Transformation. In the book, you say climate is feeling, and something in me objects right away. I mean, science, hard numbers, and gold, that's what we're fighting for here in the pirate economy. Uh, feelings are kind of like uninvited guests in so many conversations and plans. Why do you say climate is feeling? Yeah, thank you, Alex. When I think about what we mean by climate and including what those numbers and graphs and scientific instruments measure, they're things that matter to us because we can feel them. So, you know, we talk about climate in terms of average global temperatures, whether we're going to have 1.5 or 2 or 3 degrees of average global warming. But temperature is something that we feel in our bodies and that's why it matters. So, you know, increased temperatures mean heat stress and that's a really felt, embodied, very visceral uh, experience of weather, but also of climate and climate change. And we can talk about, you know, humidity as a felt experience as well. So I think that's a lot easier to make sense of talking about weather, you know, why we care about the daily weather is because we feel it in our bodies. But I don't think it's that difficult to understand that those patterns of weather that develop over time are things that we feel and experience as well. So, you know, if you're acclimatised to living in a warm climate, you get used to that and that becomes comfortable for you. But then when something changes, maybe there's a cold snap um, or conversely, if you've been living in a cold climate and then there's a heat wave, you know, those kinds of changes 
are noticed because climate is something that we feel in our bodies um, every day. It's, it's unavoidable. It's a core condition for living on the planet. In fact, for life itself uh, is our relationship with temperature through our bodies. But I guess my work around climate emotions has also been looking at the other ways that we can feel climate change through, for example, reading all the scientific reports, reading all those numbers and seeing those graphs coming from climate scientists and knowing what they mean and knowing what they represent and that that has an emotional and felt experience as well. So that's what I mean when I talk about climate as feeling that there's a whole host of ways through which the weather and the patterns of weather which constitute climate are felt both in our bodies and through our minds as well. And then you offer readers three tools, encountering, witnessing, and storying climate change. Blanche, would you care to pick one of those to tell us about? Yeah, sure. I guess maybe I'll speak about encountering because I, I think witnessing and storing are sort of particular modes of encountering. And what I talk about in that chapter is around... It relates to what we were discussing before, that we're not in control of the world. And so to encounter climate change is to to have an experience or a kind of a meeting with climate change, but one that we're not in control of where it counters our pre-existing ideas or understandings of the world. And I think in these experiences where, for example, that you mentioned at the start, that you felt, felt a bit uncomfortable or challenged, that's part of the space for learning that there might be other ways to understand or inhabit or interact with the world. So they can be, you know, really disconcerting and, yeah, as you said, uncomfortable. But I think at least for those of us in, you know, the sort of overdeveloped societies, we need to become a little bit uncomfortable and, you know, continuing to sort of operate with our heads in the sands and pretending that everything's fine is just pushing, you know, discomfort and suffering onto people elsewhere in the world or in the future. So, yeah, that's why I guess I offer that as a, a practice of coming to unlearn and challenge some of what we're doing so that we can, yeah, work for a better world. Well, right. On that denial, I found this wonderful paragraph in your book. I just want to quickly quote it. Carrie Norgard argues that if we acknowledge that climate change is too disturbing to be fully absorbed or integrated into daily life, then denial and apathy can be understood as testament to our human capacity for empathy, compassion, and an underlying sense of moral imperative to respond, even as we fail to do so. That's a complicated view, but it almost sounds like a pardon for our failure to find a sane society. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, thank you, Alex. And I should say a big thank you to Kari Norgard as well, because I think her work on that is really instructive. And I think, you know, it's so easy to get angry or frustrated at climate denial. But when we understand that it's a kind of coping mechanism for... A lot of us, even those of us who might identify as activists, you know, we all engage in, I guess, what I would call like acts or practices of denial. Um, We might not 
identify as climate deniers, but denial is something that we're all engaged in to different extents in different ways over time because, you know, as Kari writes, to really engage with the full range of what climate change means is incredibly overwhelming and exhausting and it's just not humanly possible to be doing that all the time. And so although, you know, society-wide explicit climate denial is, you know, obviously a problem, for some of us dealing with extreme climate anxiety or, you know, grief, sometimes we just need to switch off or, you know, tell ourselves that things are going to be fine, you know, just for a bit so that we can have a bit of respite from that. So. It doesn't need to be, you know, a truth that we live by, but maybe it's something that helps us get through uh, particular moments uh, that can feel otherwise just really impossible. Stemming from that, I think it can help us empathise with those around us who, you know, aren't doing as much as we might want them to um, or aren't engaging with climate change in the way that we want them to and... I guess one of the things I try to make the case for in the book is that people don't necessarily need more information about how bad things are. Often what they need is support to help them respond in ways that they find meaningful and achievable. And so that might mean, you know, instead of saying to someone, don't you know how bad this is, it might be saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Do you want to come along? It can be fun. Yeah. Does that sort of make sense? Totally makes sense, and and I'm right there with you. One of the hardest concepts for me to grasp in your book, I, I looked up some stuff about this, and I still don't know, what is effective transformation? Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm sorry that I didn't do a good enough job explaining it, but, yeah, so I guess firstly this idea of affect is a, a concept that kind of refers to emotions and feelings but is a bit bigger than that and is sort of, speaking to cultures as well, so around the kind of cultural practices we have around dispositions and moods and the kinds of emotions that we hope to feel, the ones that we um, are expected to portray, so there's kind of norms around feelings. So when I talk about needing to transform our affective regimes, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, often... We're expected to be, on, on the one hand, really positive all the time, uh, that, that uncomfortable or sad feelings aren't particularly encouraged or encouraged to be shown publicly. And so we can end up, I think, particularly in some climate discussions with a kind of toxic positivity where people are asked to, for example, always say, but what's, the, what's your reason for hope? How can you give hope to people? Or you know, that people don't feel able to be honest about how distressed they are. And in addition to that, that the ways that we have established for ourselves that we expect to find solace or good feelings is often through things that are actually really bad for the planet. So whether that's, you know, the idea of like retail therapy or something where we get good feelings from uh, consumption. So... To transform our like effective states is a, a need for collective change around what kind of feelings we 
are comfortable having, what kind of feelings we expect people to demonstrate and how we can cope with uncomfortable uh, and distressing situations and build, I guess, a sort of emotional resilience together to the, you know, really unfortunate, distressing, um, infuriating and unjust situations of climate change because a lot of us switch off or disengage because actually it's too hard to be honest about just how incredibly violent and unfair and traumatic climate change is. But if we're not having those conversations, if we're not acting in line with what our emotions are telling us, then we're not able to take the kinds of climate justice action that are needed. And so, yeah, being able to sit with discomfort collectively and process that towards action, that's what I mean by affective transformation. This great book from Blanche Verley is called Learning to Live with Climate Change from Anxiety to Transformation. There is a way to download a free ebook version, or you may prefer one of those portable off grid delivery mechanisms called a book. And you can find more info and links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Blanche Verley, thank you so much for joining our listeners on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Alex Smith. That's it for Radio EcoShock this week. I surely appreciate you listening. Please join us again next week. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock, ecoshock.org. Someday you'll go too far.